So as we go look at our final question of January, questions worth asking, um, I appreciate everyone that's participated in this. It's been a really cool uh, conversation we've been having. And really, the question today circles around law and grace, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it got me thinking about the grace of God. How would you define the grace of God? I think it might come down to how you view God to be, in your mind maybe. Uh, some people see God as this sort of kindly old grandfather, like a Santa Claus sort of figure. Um, that's out, everything's all good all the time. Um, some people may see God as sort of a stern authoritarian, sort of like an angry principal. Um, you know, I, I think both of those pictures fall short of what we see in the Bible, of course. Uh, now, when I was younger, I saw God as the principal that I wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, get out of line. And yeah, I went to the principal's office one maybe twice. But this is the first time my sophomore year in high school, I was in a class uh, working on a thing called a typewriter. If you've heard of this, this thing called a typewriter. Uh, and the class was called typewriting. Not the most academically rigorous um, experience, but they did teach you how to type, so that was helpful. A-S-D-F-J-K-L, semicolon. Over and over again, you do, you draw pictures with letters and do different exercises and all that. Now, you know, each day you do this for 50 minutes. It gets kind of tedious. One day I'm sitting in there and I'm chewing on a piece of gum. And if you remember when extra gum, the, the wrapper was like an aluminum foil, maybe it still is, I don't know. But back then, it had a foil type texture to it. So I'm chewing gum and I see the, the back of my classmate's typewriter in front of me. And there's a little hole, like a port, where you can plug something in. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I stuck this foil in that hole. So I'm chewing, and I, went, I touch the port with my aluminum foil, and his typewriter starts typing by itself. and it starts going back and forth, and paper going up and down. Oh, this is great. Typewriting just got really interesting for once. And he goes, hey, 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 what'd you do to my typewriter? I said, well, I stuck this in there. And he goes, give me a piece of gum. And I gave him a piece of gum. He did it to his friends. I gave that kid a piece of gum. And it spread like a virus until eight different typewriters are freaking out across the room and typing themselves and going back and forth. And eventually the teacher gets up and goes, what's going on here? And without uh, prompting, the whole classroom looks at me and points. <laughs> so I had to go to the principal's office. I wanted to get let off the hook. I needed a pardon from the judge, you know. And so you go, and I think the waiting is harder than the punishment, isn't it? Just sitting in the hallway for an hour just sitting there. No one talked to me. I felt shunned. Finally, the vice principal comes out and goes, what are you doing here? And I said, well, there was an incident with the typewriters. Maybe you heard about it. I don't know. He said, go back to class. And what he knew, what I didn't know, was that typewriting was a dinosaur about to die, and keyboarding was coming next semester. So all the typewriters <laughs> turned out to be okay. So I got very lucky. I think some people think of God in that way, like, oh, if I just get a pardon, I'm good right? If I get my, some people call it a fire insurance card, which is a horrible way to view a relationship with God, but it's this sort of insurance you purchase. It's just this transactional thing with the grace of God. I don't think that's how it works. But, uh, you know, it's amazing that if you, well, if you view the grace of God as merely a pardon, I think you have a tendency to abuse it, right? Um, it's amazing that God is as patient with us as he is in that we are sinners, and he knows that. He knows that we like to push the boundary. We like to see what we can get away with, put a toe over the line. 
I had a friend many years ago that had a little, their little boy was about, you know, one, one or two years old, and they're in the, the high chair stage, which a lot of us are familiar with. They put him in the high chair and give him avocado and banana and carrot, you know, uh, not carrots, don't give him carrots, that's about as hot dogs. No, uh, crackers, you know, and he said my son would, would sit in the high chair and he would grab both sides of it and just start shaking it like an earthquake. Did your kids ever do this? And he, I think he liked to watch the food bounce and they would fly off into the floor. He said, I would look at my son and I would say to him very nicely, don't do that, you're making a mess. And he would stop, you know, the kids do. And then he said, I walked away from my son, but I still looked at him as I walked away. And he was looking at me, and he gave one last little, <laughs> one last little, yeah, I heard, you, I heard what you said, but mm, I'm going to twist that knife a little bit, Dad. You know, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good microcosm for how we can approach God sometimes. Like, God, I know what you said, but eh, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I'm going to be a little bit rebellious in what I heard. And that, that comes down to many times people come to the Bible or Christianity or whatever, and they approach it, I think, the wrong way when you come at it and go, what can I get away with? Right? How far is too far? I think you're asking the wrong question if you see grace as merely a pardon or getting let off the hook. I think a better way to review grace is just the good, empowering presence of God in the midst of your sin, that he doesn't leave us in it, but he is with us in it, it's not just merely a part. I mean, that's part of it. He atones for sin, absolutely. But he, it's so much more than that, 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 that God is for you. God's for all people, right? God isn't merely interested in like a judge declaring a sentence one way or the other. He's for you. And so that tension of law and grace is the theme of the question this week that came up in various iterations. But it's this, that what do I as a Christian do or not do according to the Bible? What do I have to obey or not obey? Is it law or is it grace? And interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans was writing to a group of people that were basically asking him the same question. And they're all Jews, Jewish believers. So they were really wrestling with this because they always lived under the law, right? Their whole lives, that's all they ever knew. And so they're like, okay, what, what, Paul, what do, we, what, what do we do here? because we're transitioning from this world, this worldview, this grace you're talking about is just so monumental and huge and powerful and beautiful. Well, what about the law? It's like, well, then Paul, he comes at them with a series of rhetorical questions, which he already knows the answer to, but he asks them things like this in Romans 6. God, since God's grace has set us free from the law, shall we continue sinning? Should we keep on sinning just so that we can get more of his wonderful grace? His answer is by no means, or perish the thought. So in Romans 6, he's writing to Christians, Jewish believers, um, who are wrestling with this idea. And so what does he, he do? He goes back to the basics with them, and he says, remember, remember that when you were baptized, and you went under that water, and it represented your, your dying of your old nature, your dying to sin, and that when you raised up out of that water, that you, are, uh, you don't live in sin any longer, and that when you died with him in that way, in your baptism, that your sin was also nailed to the cross with him, and, and just like he was raised in newness of life, you will be raised as one, one day as well, so why in the world would you continue to see what you can get away with now that you live under the grace of God? So Romans 6 illustrates 
one of the most important issues of the Christian life, this thing of law versus grace, it's one of the most important issues of life, period, because the message of it is about freedom in Christ. It's about the best sort of life. It's inherently, essentially, the gospel. And I think every person that is descended from Adam and Eve, that's you and me, should read Romans 6 because it describes the kind of life that leads to eternal life. It is like the key that unlocks the most ultimate door. And he lays it out in Romans 6 very beautifully. If anyone doubts the Bible is inspired, go read the book of Romans and get back to me. Because no one can think, I mean, Paul is just, the way, he's just incredible how the Holy Spirit speaks through him. So let's look at this Romans chapter 6. I'm using the New Living Translation for this one. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. That's a great word, isn't it? And that's good news. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin and now, but now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. To a Jewish believer, that would have been an earth-shattering truth. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Paul's addressing really the duality that's within our heart, that we, do, we all wrestle with these questions. That, you know, the spirit is willing. I know that God forgives me, he loves me, he's for me, and yet I struggle, I wrestle in the midst of it. What I, I, I hear that, I, I, I receive that, I, I believe that, but I don't always do that, right? I know what I ought to do, but I don't always do it. And that's, that's us, that's us as well. So I wanna make three points with this. That The first is that law points to our need for grace. The law actually has, still serves a purpose. Uh, that grace, the God, grace of God fulfilled the law and that dead and, not, and, dead and yet alive. So first, the law points to our need for grace. In a good news way, the law that we're talking about actually points to our need for the grace of God. I'll explain what I mean. Some people can approach the Bible, Christianity, whatever, with this sort of works-based mentality. 
like I have to cram for the exam uh, now, I get it right or wrong, or else I'm going to fail at the end of my life, right? This is sort of this workspace mentality, like to salvation. But that's not what the Bible says what salvation is. None of us are righteous. None of us can reach that glorious standard of the law. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would write, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. You know, you hear this a lot. People say, well, as long as I'm a good person, what? I'm going to go to heaven. You heard, you heard this? Maybe you believe that. Biblically, it's not there. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible about us being able to say, oh, God, I'm a good person. According to Ephesians chapter 2, it says salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. None of us can boast about it. Even Paul would say, I could not fulfill the law. I was Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the ultimate religious guy. I couldn't do it. We'll get into that in a second. So when Paul writes about the law, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Things that covered uh, ritual purification, temple worship, circumcision, dietary laws, keeping the Sabbath. That's all that sort of stuff he's talking about. So why are we no longer under those, some of those things? As I said, Paul would say, I'm going to summarize him here, we're no, we're no longer under it because we, we, we fail at it. We can't keep it. No one's righteous. Even Paul said, my righteousness that I thought I had was like filthy rags. It was like rubbish, he would say. This man-made righteousness, you have to have grace to reach the standard we're talking about. In Romans chapter 7, if you read the next chapter, he goes at length about this, which I encourage you to read. He basically comes to his hypothesis, his main point, where he says, though the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and good. It's from God, so it's good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. So he's saying the law is spiritual, it's good, it still has a purpose. In that, it shows our inability to reach it. Therefore, we need God's good, empowering presence, grace, to reach that standard. Which begs the question, what still stands in that Mosaic Law? Do we just write off whole chunks of it and throw it into a bucket as culturally irrelevant? Paul never says that. And neither does Jesus, actually. Even Article 6 of our United Methodist Articles of Religion state that Christians are still under the law as it pertains to moral precepts. The Ten Commandments, you've heard of those, right? Admonitions against inbreeding or bestiality or all sorts of things. Now, as it pertains to ceremonial law, no shellfish, clothing of two kinds, all that sort of stuff, ritual purification, temple worship, the temple's gone. We don't follow those things anymore. It's been done with. So in this regard, we needed the grace of God to fulfill the law because we couldn't do it ourselves. Jesus, as his own, his own words, said, I am the fulfillment of the law. He is the ultimate fulfillment of all of that law. Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us from the law that we could not meet. That is, his sacrificial work on the cross purchased our freedom from the law. Jesus fulfilled the original pretent, uh, intent of the Mosaic law, and he did it perfectly. So, this, so the last point is dead and yet alive. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Many, I think many believers especially, we walk in a place of self-condemnation. We walk, some can walk in a place of self-hatred, actually. Because we're focusing on what we've done wrong. We're focusing on the sin that Jesus, was, they, Paul says, is nailed to the cross with Christ. We tend to take those things and pull them back out, down off the cross and caress it and hold it close as if somehow we can atone for the things that we have done. We take a sacrifice to the Lord and we bring it, take it back and say, no, I want to walk in the place of shame. See, hear this. I think one of Satan's main tactics against Christian people is to hold you down with where you used to be. One of the greatest frustrations of a pastor is to convince people that you have more power than you're currently walking in. That he, God is not coming to what make you be in a place of shame, to walk in a place of self-condemnation. Yes, even self-hatred. The enemy wants to keep you stifled, spiritually stuck in the past. Therefore, you will never walk in the newness of life Paul is talking about. He wants to keep you stuck on the ways that you fail the law and not on the grace that he has given you. For example, have you ever driven by your old high school? Anybody ever done this? It's a surreal experience, especially after you cross 40, and you, I mean, the age of 40, not Interstate 40. <laughs> and you begin to think, wow, I'm getting old, and that was a long time ago, and we all had really bad haircuts, and ugh. But you drive by your old high school, and I've done this, you, and you look at it, and, and you think, there's good, there's good memories, but you, like, you go to your old home place, or you think about, th- those places have such power, right? So these memories come back. And there's good memories, but why is it that bad memories always get more play? And I'll think about, oh man, I remember when I, I got in a fight behind that building. I remember when I got caught smoking in the 600 building, and I got suspended for three days. I remember when I lied to my parents and I skipped school. And we think about all of these things. And then while you're, while you're standing there, at least for me, you hear this whisper in your mind like, you call yourself a Christian? Are you really a man of God? Who do you think you are? And in the middle of all that shame and that guilt, I, you're reminded of the words of Romans chapter 6 that are a great reminder that that old man is dead. That old Clark Chilton was nailed, the sins of mine were nailed to the cross with Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. All of our sins, your past, your present, your future, and yes, even our inability to fulfill the law were paid for on the cross, that you have been justified by the work of God on your behalf once and for all. So like Paul says, why in the world would you go back to that place? 
Why in the world would you go back to an empty well that will not satisfy to stay stuck spiritually? I think a lot of people walk around with this mentality of you're kind of a fourth string quarterback. Is that even a thing? I know there's a third string. Is there a fourth string? Like, yeah, I'm on the team, but I'm on the bench. I'm never going to play, but I'll watch the game in front of me. I might show up and practice every once in a while. No, according to what Paul is saying, you actually have a spot on the roster. And here's the great thing about the kingdom. The way God picks his teams is not how we would pick our teams. At all. At all. Think about the 12 disciples. Would you hire those guys to work in your business? Doubt it. Would you hire Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector? Would you hire lepers and murderers and thieves and liars? Would you hire Saul, who became Paul? Forget about it. God's grace gravitates towards those people on the fringes. He atones for their sin and frees them from the law because sick people need a doctor, not healthy people. Dead people need life. Thirsty people need water. His strength is made perfect in weakness, and he delights to oppose the proud but exalt the humbled. He delights to meet us in our weakness to show his power. When you were baptized, you received power. When you were confirmed, you received power. When you are at your conversion, you received power. I can see why John Wesley preached so much on the new birth. It was maybe his number one theme that he preached on because it simply meets the needs, the biggest need of the human heart that you are capable of more by the grace of God in your life than you think you are, that he knows more of what you can do than you think you can do. Look at Sasha from Moscow. Did he ever think he'd be starting a seminary? All because of grace. All because of the good, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. The law would never birth that in his life. This rule-based mentality I say this because every time you focus on your failure or your doubt or the sin that's already been atoned for, when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, it meant that the work of salvation for in your behalf was finished. There's nothing you can do to make it any better or make him love you more. It died on that day. Should you keep on sinning so that God can show us more of his grace? Of course not. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, could we, how do we continue to live in it? I'll close this by saying I just encourage all of us to put your focus not on how you have failed because we all have failed the standard. We all have failed the law. None of us are going to achieve it. And God knows that. But put your focus on the good and right, empowering work of God on your behalf through his son, Jesus. He has paid what you could not pay yourself. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, him who had no sin. I'm going to say a prayer. Let's all close our eyes and bow our heads. And as I pray, I pray especially for anyone that is hearing this message, and maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Maybe it's resonating with you in a way that you've never fully understood. 
Maybe you have thought that all of this is about being a good person. You know, friend, none of us are good. And God knows that, and he loves you in the midst of that. He loves us in the midst of our willful disobedience. He loves us in the ways that we do push the boundaries. And he loves us in those places of shame and brokenness and doubt and guilt. And even despite that, he is for you. And as the Spirit moves in this place, I encourage you to to say a prayer to God. God, meet me in my brokenness. Meet me in my mess. Thank you for paying the price for me. And let me become a new creation. Friends, this is the best news any of us could ever hear. That God loves us as we, where we are, but loves us too much to leave us where we are. God, we thank you that you are ever present with your people. You're not a stern authoritarian looking to condemn, but that you are seeking to empower and bless your people. That you see more of who we could be than we do. Continue to do this good work within us. Strip away the old man, the old woman. Tear it off. Let us walk in newness of life. Thank you for your patience and your grace and your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray.